Well, one of the last classes that I took at Denver Seminary before I graduated 36 years ago, can't believe it, was yet another preaching course from my mentor, Haddon Robinson. And one of the things we did was to map out a year's worth of preaching topics so that when we got to our first church, which these young preachers were going out now, we, we, we wanted and he wanted us to at least have the subject matter and the passages kind of set in stone so that that's one less thing we'd have to think about. And I think it was a great idea. Well, if not the first, at least one of the first series that I was looking forward to preaching on was on the life of David. I had always been fascinated with him. Well, now, 36 years later, I'm finally getting to the series with some help from Pastor Peter. It's taken this long to do a series on David. Anyways, anyway, the reason I have always been fascinated with this man was because he was a man who gained the title in the Bible of a man after God's own heart. Twice. Once in the Old Testament and then once in the New He was a poet, a warrior, a king. He was a man who reflected humility and reverence and respect and trust and and love and devotion, faithfulness, obedience, uh, courage, to name just a few. And yet, and yet, this same man at times showed a cowardice that must have had some of his men in his army saying, Why exactly are we following this guy again? He was at times brutal. At times he was faithless. He was a lousy father. The man who gave us some of the most soaring words of worship that 10,000 hymnists and songwriters have put to music was at times so unthinking and so careless in his worship of God that people actually lost their lives because of it. He was an adulterer. He was a murderer. And he was a man after God's own heart. Fascinating. Complex. Surely a person worth getting to know a bit better. Alan Redpath, in the foreword to his book on David, wrote this. He said, the Bible never flatters its heroes. It tells us the truth about each one of them in order that against the background of human breakdown and failure, we may magnify the grace of God and recognize that it is the delight of the Spirit of God to work upon the platform of human impossibilities. God worked with David. He works with you and with me. Because the Spirit of God delights to work with you to make the impossible possible. I don't know all of you intimately, especially online. I don't even know everybody who watches online. I wish I did. But I know a number of people in our church fairly well. And I know that we have some pretty remarkable people here. And I'm sure there's a lot of remarkable people out there. People who have stood tall in the face of adversity. People who have shown traits of loyalty and and, and generosity and caring, the likes I wish I could regale this morning to everybody watching. I also know that we have some people, at least in our church, who could only be characterized as impossible, stubborn, 
Uh, they faint and fall away when they should stand tall. Uh, they've had chapters in their lives, I think many are going through some right now, that they hope no one will ever fully hear about. There have been times, times when some of you, I'll bet, have questioned whether someone with your thought patterns, with some of your dark attitudes that you grapple with, could possibly even be saved. The funny thing is that sometimes, actually, more often than you know, the remarkable people and the impossible people are one and the same person. I get it. I count myself among you. There have been times that if not for the witness of God's spirit in my heart, convincing me of the truth of God, of the truth of his presence and his working in my life, and, and his reminded to me that the fact that the making of a saint is the task of a lifetime, I would be extremely, extremely depressed most of the time. In this series, we'll be exploring a man whose great heights and faithful following of God and whose stubbornness and faithless failures only serve to highlight the still greater faithfulness, mercy, and grace of God. And I hope that you will see that as we study David, that what we're really doing is studying ourselves. Sometimes remarkable, often impossible people who God desires to do impossible things through as the Holy Spirit empowers us. So let's begin. Chapter 16 of 1 Samuel is preceded by chapter 15. <laughs> Let me give you a real brief recap of chapter 15 so we can understand chapter 16. In chapter 15, God tells Saul, the king of Israel, to go and destroy the Amalekites. Now, soon after the nation was liberated from their captivity in Egypt with Moses leading them, you remember that story, an event happened that God at least had not forgotten about. It seems that as the nation was traveling through the wilderness, these same Amalekites mercilessly ambushed the Hebrew stragglers who were at the end of the line, who, because of their weariness, couldn't keep up with the rest, and they killed just a number of them. At that time, God said that he would punish them for what they did sometime in the future. Well, the future had arrived. In addition to that sin of killing you know, the Israelites who were straggling, the Amalekites were a generally brutal, cruel people, and God was finally going to bring judgment upon them. So he told Saul to destroy the entire nation, everything that had breath, including the livestock, which really represented the wealth of the people. God made it clear that they were not to take the best of the livestock, which is what normally happened in a battle, uh, and because it represented their riches, you know, which which the armies normally did when acquiring territory or authority over a region or a people. God said this. He said, this is not a time to nation build. You are my instrument of judgment against this brutal people. So what does Saul do? Well, he mostly destroys the Amalekite. But he ends up saving all the good stuff for himself to enrich Israel, thereby turning a time of judgment into a time for war profiteering and also in the process, disobeying God. This was not the first time that Saul had disobeyed God. 
Chapter 15 was just a picture of what had been a slow, steady decline of Saul the king. Now, when he came to power, Saul was young, he was insecure, he was shy, and he had a modicum of humility. And Samuel, when he anointed Saul, had so much hope that God would take an impossible person and make him into someone great. He had hoped that he, Saul, would be molded into a man after God's own heart, a man with a heart for God. But now, sadly, we see that because of his continued disobedience, what was hoped for probably, probably would never be. Saul would never be that king. You know, it's a sad thing. It's actually a tragic thing when potential never gets beyond that stage. When because of misfortune or failure, you're left to ponder what could have been, what, what might have been. The brilliant budding athlete blows out his knee and is forever sidelined. The bright straight-A student is felled by substance abuse. There may be a friend or an, or an acquaintance, and you see it, and you shake your head, and you say, how sad, what a pity. And if it is your child, when the potential that comes to nothing is a son or a daughter, let's just say that there is no small amount of emotional torture involved when it's your own flesh and blood. When you look at Saul and Samuel and their relationship, you might be tempted to think that it was something akin to a friend or acquaintance type of relationship, prophet and king sort of thing, kind of formal. It wasn't that way at all. Their relationship, though they did not come from the same DNA pool, was like a father-son type of connection. You know, Samuel was a father who saw the obvious flaws of his son, but who continued to hope and pray that he would get his act together. You know, a dad sometimes often makes allowances for his children in ways he would never for someone else's. And sometimes, tragically, the day may come when he might say to himself, you know, I don't know if he is, I don't know if he's ever going to figure this out. And there is a sadness that comes with that realization, a grief that accompanies that parent who sees their progeny making shipwreck of their lives. But if by chance the child does begin to go down a good path, well, you'd be hard pressed to find an individual more joyous than that parent. But at the end of chapter 15, we see a man, a prophet, a father, who literally is shattered, grieving for all the loss, grieving for the waste, grief-stricken, inconsolable for what could have been. And so we see Samuel mourning for Saul. He had hoped that Saul would be a king who reflected the heart of God and how he wielded power and how he treated the poor. He had hoped that he would be the kind of leader who saw himself as the greatest servant, someone who, who his people would die for because they knew that he would do the same for them. He had hoped, hoped that he would be different, that Saul would be different, but he turned out to be like all the other kings instead. You know, there is, there is a time for grieving loss like that. There is. 
But the problem is that you can get so despondent, so lost in grief, that one day you wake up and find that you have become a truly sad, almost pathetic figure yourself who is so consumed with the failures of another, whether that be a child, a spouse, a close friend, or a leader in whom you've placed your trust, that your own life is in danger of loss. The things that you have been called to do are in danger of never getting done as you stew in self-pity and in grief. So in verse 1 of the next chapter, chapter 16, the Lord says to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Samuel, listen, God says, I get it. You're sad. You've experienced great loss. But listen to me. Listen to me now. It's time to pick yourself up, get your own act together, and move ahead to be my instrument in leading and serving my people. I know you're an old man, but you're not dead, so I'm not done with you. I have things for you to do. And so, he does. He doesn't particularly like getting back in the game. But he picks himself up, and he goes. And God gives him instructions. He tells him to go and anoint one of the sons of Jesse in Bethlehem to be, as we read, the next king. Now, Samuel knows Saul. He knows him probably better than anybody on the planet. And he knows that by... You know, this time he had become a bit unhinged emotionally, which happens regularly, by the way, to people who live a life of disobedience to God. I've seen it a thousand times. And he knows that if Saul got wind of what he was doing, in spite of their past relationship, that he would have had no hesitation in separating his head from his shoulders, not to mention Jesse's entire family and all his sons and his own family, Samuel's own family and his grandchildren and everybody else in his family back home. But notice something. When Samuel puts up a kind of a, uh, his heels in the ground and, and, and an objection, God doesn't chastise him for asking the question. He doesn't say, Samuel, you're supposed to be a prophet. Where's your courage, man? So he tells him, he tells him to say that he's come to sacrifice for the Lord, which the prophets often did. That's what they did a lot of times. Now, if you look at this and say, well, just tell him you're coming to to sacrifice. You look at that, you say, hey, that sounds like a lie to me. It wasn't. He was going to sacrifice. But it certainly wasn't the whole story, was it? Note, remember not to equate lying with secrecy. Sometimes because of the evil intents of evil men, it's best to go about your business quietly. Corey Ten Boone's family, who was mentioned by our speaker last week, who hid Jews in their attic during World War II, didn't announce it to the neighborhood or to the Nazi officials. As missionaries cross the border into nations hostile to the gospel with Bibles hidden in their suitcases, they don't proclaim, Bibles for sale, unless they desire to commit assisted suicide. They don't anyway. Do you really think it's wise to tell the whole story to the town, the school, the family? the church gossip? 
Jesus said that his people should be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. It means that they should use their fine heads and brains that God has given them to be careful with certain people who seemed to regularly do a fair amount of harm when they get a hold of all the information. Anyway, he goes. Samuel goes. He goes off to anoint Israel's next king, whoever that may be. And he walks into Jesse's house. Now, Jesse knew he was coming, and he knew why he was coming. I'm sure he made all the boys take a shower that morning and wear their best clothes. And the first person Samuel sees when he walks through the door is the oldest son, Eliab. And Samuel literally is wowed by him. Verse 7, very interesting. Verse 7 indicates something about Eliab. It notes that Eliab is tall. Now, that small detail, or what seems like a small detail, maybe kind of an unimportant detail, that is not a throwaway comment. You know, we as people are usually swayed in our opinion by people by how they look. Statistics tell us, for instance, that height matters. Height is is associated with many advantages in life. Taller people tend to earn more money, and they're more popular on online dating sites. Almost 60% of American presidents were taller, for instance, than 5'10", which is the current national average for men in the United States. Now, remember, remember, that is judging a 245-year history. And years ago, people were much, much shorter. But imagine that. 60% of American presidents were 5'10 or taller. Now, I'm six foot. If I was born just 35 years earlier than the year I was born, statistically, I would have grown to be about five foot, seven and one half inches. See, we've gotten taller. When George Washington, who was 6'2", entered the room during the Continental Congress dressed in his formal military attire, historians have noted that it was at that very moment that everyone in the room decided who the first president of the new nation would be. Oh, that's ridiculous. It doesn't matter how tall you are. Stuff like that doesn't matter. People don't care about stuff like that. Well, you know what? Statistics tell me otherwise. Likewise, we'd like to think that it doesn't matter how we look, that we've gotten past that. That sentiment is is more what we would like to think, I think, than the actuality of what we really believe, though. I really believe that. Why else would, would people worldwide have spent $382 billion last year on cosmetic products? Or why did we in the United States spend $9 billion on aesthetic plastic surgery in 2020? Or, or, or why was $71 billion spent in the weight loss market last year in the United States? See, one of the reasons we do what we do is because we learn very early in life to make snap judgments about people based on the way they look. It's part of what's in us. Samuel took one look at Eliab and he said, there's a king. Snap judgment. It's like saying, well, she has nice hair. I'll bet she could head up the accounting department. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. Samuel should have known better. 
but he hadn't learned his lesson. Some of you know where I'm going. <laughs> Do you remember what we said about the failed King Saul when he was first introduced for consideration? In 1 Samuel chapter 9, the first thing people noticed and which ingratiated him to them and was one of the reasons why they wanted to make him king was that he was a head taller than everyone else. He was tall, he was dark, he was handsome, and everybody thought that this guy from Central Casting would obviously make a great king. And look what happened. But Samuel knew that. He just he had just seen this movie played out before before his eyes not long before. See Samuel, and this is not a novice. Samuel knew God from his youth. If you know the story of Samuel. He'd served God in the temple from being a little boy. He knew that God was not swayed or impressed by the superficials. But he forgot. And God had to remind him. Verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. See, he should have known that God goes deeper. That God goes right to the heart of the matter, which is the heart. Samuel, what is your problem? Don't you know that my eyes go deeper than, than surf the surface? I'm not impressed with money or credentials or beauty or power or stature. I look at character. I am most interested not in what is on the outside what's on the inside. But Samuel had forgotten. We shouldn't. Well, back to our story, back to Jesse's house. Um, back at Jesse's house, the uh, beauty pageant continues. Next, after oldest brother, Eliab, comes Abinadab, then Shema, then all the other brothers, one by one. And after each walk down the runway, Samuel says the exact same thing. No, no, not that one either. That's it. Not him. No. And then all of a sudden, they're all gone. There are no more. Well, now what? Everybody, all, all the sons had gone past Samuel, and God hadn't given the green light. And Samuel turns to Jesse, and he says in verse 11, are these all the sons you have? Is that, is that it? Then Jesse, in a thinly veiled, almost bordering on contemptuous reply, says, they're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's, he's tending the sheep. Listen, Samuel, it's, it's, it's not him. Take my word for it. He dreams. He throws rocks. He throws rocks with a slingshot. He writes poetry. He's an artiste, if you know what I mean. I, I, I didn't even have him come in for review because I know it's not him. That's not who you're looking for. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. Now, there are a few things you need to know concerning God's choice of David and God's choice of anyone who heeds his call and in whom he is desirous to do 
impossible things through. The first thing you need to know is when God chooses a person to come follow him, it's usually contrary to human reason. Do you ever notice in scripture the impossible type people God often calls? Often they were not uh, the ones who you would expect, often not the type of people that you would expect God would choose to do improbable, impossible things. Before Jesus called his disciples, he went up on a mountain and he prayed all night. Jesus prayed all night because he knew what he was going to do the next day was really, really important. This is the group, the men he called, after a long night in prayer that he called to follow him to change the world. And listen, anybody evaluating this group with a modicum of understanding or proficiency in human psychological understanding would have dismissed them or at least assigned them to the bench for a really long time until they pulled their act together finally. But listen, it almost seemed as if Jesus's strategy was to pick the most ordinary people he could could find. There was not a superstar among them, it would seem. William Barclay, looking at each of the disciples that Jesus called, wrote this. He said, judging them by worldly standards, the men Jesus chose had no special qualifications at all. They were not wealthy. They had no special social position. They were not specially educated. They were not trained theologians. They were not high-ranking churchmen and ecclesiastics. They were 12 ordinary men. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with ordinary. But if you're trying to do something extraordinary, you got to gather a talented team. I mean, these guys all showed callousness in their hearts. They all ran from Jesus in his hour of greatest need in Gethsemane when he was arrested. One denied with profanities when pressed that he even knew him. Yet it was with these ordinary men that Jesus established his church and disseminated the good news to the ends of the earth. These were his guys. And I got to tell you something. If you look at them one by one, that's just hard to figure. I'll tell you somebody who noticed, though, who noticed Jesus' team. Paul. The apostle Paul did. And he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. In other words, not many of you were wise as the world defines wisdom. Not many were influential. That is, not many of you were born with the advantages or clout from being in prestigious positions in government, education, business, etc. Not many of you knew the right people. Not many of you were proficient in the system and how to maneuver around it so that you could take full advantage of it. Not many of you were of noble birth. Literally, Not many of you were well-born. That's what the word means. Your people didn't come over on the Mayflower. You didn't come from old money. Quite the opposite. Paul wanted to remind them that they who had been called by God, as the disciples had been called by God, were to be a living, breathing contradiction to the argument that you're only going to accomplish improbable things. You're only going to be successful if you've gathered around you a group of smart, powerful, well-placed individuals with some pedigree. Now, listen, Paul wasn't saying that it's 
never who God calls. <laughs> of course, there are some. Now, listen, after reading the description a few minutes ago of David, that he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features, honestly, some of you said to yourselves, well, the pastor just contradicted himself. Uh, no, I didn't. Are there brilliant and beautiful people who hear the gospel and who recognize the depth of their sinful state and the hopelessness of this situation apart from the blood of Jesus being shed on the cross to pay the penalty of their sins and who end up clinging to the cross and receiving Jesus by faith? Yes, yes. Are there some incredibly capable, savvy, well-educated, financially blessed, erudite individuals who are part of the church? Yeah, seems like it. Listen, that is not the bulk, though, of who will come. That's what the Bible seems to say. That is not the group that the gospel finds its most fertile ground in then or now. How do I know? Well, again, reminder, look at Jesus' disciples. A couple of weeks ago uh, in, in a message, uh, I called attention to a rich man in the Gospels, and, and he came to Jesus and wanted to know how to be saved. And Jesus said to him, sell everything. And he said to him, sell everything and come and follow me. But with a downcast face and eyes, he sadly walked away because he just couldn't. See, God calls people who others might think nothing extraordinary could ever come from. In David, you see the Lord. Jesus Christ, above all, was one who was misunderstood. And you know what they used to say about him? Messiah. This can't be the Messiah. How could this be the Messiah? Listen, if you want to see the type of people who are answering the call, go look in the mirror for a lot of you. Influential, wise, noble birth. Most of us were not called because we were brilliant or influential or had connections or had it all together. We were called because God opened your heart to the truth of his word, to your sinfulness, to his love. And you know what you did? You responded. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. What was Paul's point? Here was Paul's point. God's people are not the people that you would think you would come up with to be used to be a voice to move people into God's kingdom and away from eternal judgment. They're not the kind of people who, who would give hope to hopeless suicidal souls, to feed and clothe the hungry and the naked. You'd never think they were the kind of people who would cross cultural and even religious boundaries to serve astounding recipients with a love and compassion that even their own people had not exhibited to them. People who are Super neighbors, not because they're trying so hard to be a super neighbor, neighbor, but just because they're being what God is making them into. Vessels fit for the high seas of adversity and the sorrows of this life. God does not look on the outside as we do. He looks at the heart. Because the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. 
When God chooses a person to come follow him first, it's usually contrary to human reason. Second thing, when God chooses a person to come follow him, it is conditioned by his or her response. Now listen, long before the day that Samuel appeared at his door, David had been nurturing a relationship with God. It didn't start that day. His heart had been prepared. His heart already had a bent toward hearing from and listening to God. Remember what God's word was to Samuel? People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's why he picked David. There was already something going on. David would meet with God under the stars at night when he was, he would look at the heavens and he said, the heavens declare the glories of God. It was in those days, those early days that he penned this. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He, he had a believing heart. He knew he was sinful and needed the grace and guidance of God in his life to watch over him, to protect him. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. You know, though there were plenty of challenges and heartaches and impossible situations, even in this young man's life, his faith in the unseen God quieted his restless soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Far from perfect, David had set his heart to follow God. He had set his heart on holiness. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. In his most terrifying moments, in the fiercest of battle, he was confident that the unseen God would see him through everything the enemy of his soul would throw at him. How? How? He said, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. God, I know that you will not fail me in this lifetime. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I know my future is secure forever. None of these things came as a result of his natural birth. We know that. He didn't have a propensity to just be a caring, faithful, wonderful guy. David wrote this. He said, surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. No. The young man who wrote those words had had his heart already conditioned based upon his response to the voice of God in his life. Long before, long before Samuel ever showed up. God had been speaking to David for a long time before the day of his anointing. You know what? The real heart of the matter has always been and always will be the matter of the heart. How responsive, how responsive is your heart to the heart of God? When God chooses a person to come follow him, it's usually contrary to human reason. When God chooses a person to come follow him, it's conditioned by his or her responses to God's voice. Lastly, when God chooses a person to come follow him, it's corroborated, it's, it's evidenced by the presence of the Spirit of God.
Verse 13 said this. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. You know, every Christian, the Bible says, the New Testament says, every Christian is anointed. We're all anointed with the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. That's how you could tell someone is a Christian if the Spirit of God is present. It was years before David, who was anointed as king that day by Samuel, finally and fully came into his kingship. We're going to see that. For more than a decade, he was on the run from Saul. And yet, and yet it says on that day, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. You know, one of the primary ways that we can know that we are his children is by how we react to adversity. David has to wait patiently for years and years and years, and along the way is persecuted terribly as an outlaw. We're going to get into that. But through that, God was working in David's life. You know, it seems to be a pattern in scripture. It's just, you can see it all over. It seems to be a pattern to, to, for the redeemed of the Lord. You know, so that whole thing that David went through of, of, of the affliction. Saul came into power easily as a young man. And, and I think the power and the ease of it all, of coming into kingship, I think it seduced him. I think it ruined him. Not so with David. David became a man after God's own heart as he was forced to depend on God through the helper, the Holy Spirit of God, which dwelled in him in so many difficult situations. David literally was matured through suffering. It just always seems to be the way God matures a wayward heart. The presence of hardship was not an indicator that God's spirit wasn't there. It showed that he was there guarding his heart and seeing him through the valley of the shadow of death. What really matters is my heart, not my outside. I can fool people, but God sees my heart. And what you need to say today is, I have to be very careful about guarding my heart. I may be called like David to be a, a, a patient person for a long time before these promises seem to be coming true, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to remain patient. I'm going to remain steadfast. If I have to suffer as he did, I'll realize that God is going to work redemptively through those hardships. God is speaking to you. He is, if you will listen. His loving voice is speaking even now. He's waiting and wondering if you will lean in and hear it or let it be drowned out by the thousand shrill sounds of the culture around us. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. You know, sometimes I think people's assurance of their salvation is based upon a warm feeling or a 20-year-ago prayer. But you got to ask yourself, am I responding to God's voice? Am I responding to his instruction, his clear words to me? Is there any evidence at all that the Holy Spirit is operating in my life? Is there any evidence of all of love and grace and humility and gentleness and compassion and patience and long-suffering? Is there? And are you willing to say, search me, God, 
and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Are you willing to pray that prayer? David was. See, God's choice is not based upon a head response. It's always based on a heart response to him. When God chooses a person to come follow him, it's almost always contrary to human reason. When God chooses a person to come follow him, it's always conditioned by his or her response. And when God chooses a person to come follow him, it's corroborated, it's evidenced by the presence of the Spirit. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. Do you want to see the salvation of your family? Do you want to see the resurrection of your marriage? Have you longed to see the crossing church become the redemptive influence in our community that it can be? Do you want to see your influence come to bear on your workplace, your school, your neighborhood, to make it a better place? And turn off the celebrities. Turn down the music. Tune out the pundits and all the trivial stuff that we look at a thousand times a day and pour, pay more attention to the condition of your heart. It is the delight of the Spirit of God to work upon the platform of human impossibilities. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. In this series, may God show us through his servant David and through the greater David, Jesus Christ, how to guard and open our hearts to the voice and to the leading of Almighty God. And Father, that is our prayer for this series. We pray, God, that would we would lean in and that we would hear your voice and that we would be obedient, Lord God, to hear your call and to follow in your ways, O oh God. And then we know that the impossible things we look at in our life, the things that we could only hope and dream about, we know for that person, you're going to be working to do the impossible, to do things that we can only imagine. So God, I pray that that would be happening to us as a church, individuals, and for those who are watching online, every one of us, Lord God, to, to listen, to hear, to follow your voice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.